Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Love Doctor podcast, research-informed advice that can lubricate any conversation about sex. My name is Dr. Leah Tidy, and I'm so glad to have you here. Today in the show, I'm answering your questions about queer representation in the media and how to maintain independence in a relationship. As someone who literally works 10 feet away from their partner all day, it's something I've thought about a lot. I also share my interview with the one and only Joan Price, the 78-year-old senior sex expert. By the way, happy birthday, Joan. Spends her time talking out loud about senior sex. We talk about the myths that people have about sexuality and aging, share advice on how to navigate conversations with new sexual partners, and how humor is essential to great sex. But first, today in sex. Canada likes to position itself as this progressive kumbaya nation that doesn't have nearly the same issues with race, colonization, and transphobia as the U.S. does. But clearly, that's not true. From the impact of ongoing colonial violence on Indigenous peoples to the rise of overt racism and white supremacy, with a 2019 survey indicating that nearly half of Canadians believe discrimination against Black people is no longer a problem, even as 83% of Black people in Canada say they are treated unfairly at least some of the time, well, this idea of an inclusive nation, it's not true. And it never was. And the latest transphobic bill proposed in Quebec underpins just how inequitable this country really is. Bill 2 includes a stipulation that people can only request a sex change on their birth certificate after undergoing gender-affirming surgery on their sex organs. The person's gender would then have to be reconfirmed by a doctor who did not perform the surgery. And this bill goes even further, stating that if folks don't meet the surgical requirements, then their government documentation, meaning their driver's license, their healthcare cards, and so on, will have a separate gender section. As Manon Massé states, who's the co-spokesperson and MNA for Quebec Solidaire, having separate sex and gender indications on ID will lead to a kind of daily coming out for trans people, and it's not acceptable. We know that gender is not about what is between our legs, but about our internal sense of who we are and how we choose to express that. It's also true that many trans folks decide not to undergo any form of gender-affirming surgery, and there can be risks in terms of fertility if folks do have surgery. So what does the proposal of Bill 2 tell us about the state of inclusion in Canada? Sadly, that we have a lot more work to do and that a lot of that work needs to come from allies. Trans and intersex activists already know that this is an issue, and we need action from cisgender allies who can amplify their voices and demonstrate that this is a human rights issue. It could be signing a petition, attending a march, sharing on your social media, or educating ourselves so we can have conversations with the important people in our lives who might listen to us instead of, say, I don't know, a podcaster or a news reporter. I also want to recognize that our world is filled with issues that need to be addressed, and our role in addressing them, that's going to be different for everyone. And there can be toxic spaces of who is woker than thou that really shut down these conversations instead of opening them up to actually make these social changes that we desperately need. Now, in my very privileged position, it is my job to listen and to hopefully hold a space where we can have difficult conversations that need to happen to move our world forward. 
That's what I hope this podcast can be, a place to raise a profile on diverse ways of being in the world, and as I've said many times, to unlearn all of that shit that we've been taught, starting with the idea that Canada is inclusive. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk, and now let's get to your calls. Hey, Leah, I have a question that I was hoping you might be able to help me with. The other day, a friend of my parents told me that it feels like nowadays the percentage of queer people in movies and media in general is way higher than it is in reality. He said that to him the community feels overrepresented. To me, it actually feels like the opposite is true. I don't think we have enough representation currently. So I was wondering whether there are statistics on how many people approximately identify as LGBTQ+, and whether that matches their representation in media. Thank you so much for the work you do. Bye. This is a great question, uh, and also kudos to you if you, like, kept your cool while you were talking to this person. Now, the first thing is that it's really hard to get reliable statistics on LGBTQ plus folks, even though there is actually a book called LGBTQ Stats. But because of the politics of identifying as queer and what terminology folks use to describe themselves and the consequences of being openly queer in a pretty homophobic world, well... It's much better than it used to be, but it's still not great. So because of these reasons, it's really hard to get reliable data and statistics on how many folks actually identify as LGBTQ+. So in an article by Jen Tribbett about the stats of LGBTQ plus folks in the U.S., they state that in 2015, research from YouGov found that 31% of young Americans don't identify as exclusively heterosexual. But a different study from 2018 found that only 4.5% of the U.S. population identifies as LGBT. So this is quite a spread in those numbers, but it's also showing us that there's a real generational shift in what is deemed as socially acceptable and how, as frustrating as it is, we actually have come a long way in terms of openly talking about queer identities and creating a safer world to be open about who we are. Now, Tribbett also interviews Dr. Gary Gates, who is a demographer who focuses on the LGBTQ plus community, who says that if you just look at a map in the U.S. that says the percentage of population who identifies as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, what you will see is a map of social acceptance. Gates theorizes that in places with higher acceptance, more people are willing to openly identify as LGBT, while places with more anti-LGBT sentiment will see a repression of that identity and not just in the numbers. Gates says, it's really being driven by the willingness of people to acknowledge themselves. And when they're in climates that are more accepting, you get higher percentages. It's very obvious in the data. So this is telling us that because of these stigmatized identities, it's really hard to get reliable data on this. So now that we have some understanding of what are the statistics of how many people are actually queer, I mean, some stats will say only 4% of the population. Some will say as much as 25 or 30%. Now, in terms of media representation, there are higher rates of LGBTQ plus folks in reality TV as opposed to other forms of media, which has been really helpful, actually, in sharing, even though it's not really real life, but sharing so-called real life of openly queer folks while also placing them in the public eye. I mean, we think about it, there's RuPaul's Drag Race, there's Queer Eye, there's lots of these reality TV shows where queer folks are celebrated for who they are. But this is still within a pretty limited scope. A lot of the time, they are conventionally attractive, they're normally white, able-bodied, they're middle class, they're gay men, and they're typically in long-term monogamous relationships because this fits our ideal of relationship models. 
There's actually an entire book entitled Reality TV and Queer Identities, where the author argues that reality television's representations of queer people matter, that taken together, they have been instrumental to the ways in which non-heterosexual and gender non-conforming identities have come to be understood within contemporary cultural life. And that's pretty amazing that reality TV can have that much of an impact on the people who are being represented, but also the people who are consuming that and maybe seeing themselves reflected in media for the first time. In the last 30 years in particular, there has been a lot more representation of queer identities, but these are still pretty limited. If the younger generation is any indication, we're going to see more queer content with more diverse identities shown in the media because our cultural attitudes are shifting and more and more folks are identifying as other than heterosexual. My hope is that as we continue to have more open discussions about sexual identity, about gender, about relationship orientations, that this will continue to be reflected in the media that is created. The last thing that I'll say is that if your friend is feeling like there is too much representation, the only point that I will concede to them is that it can definitely be tokenistic. Now, in episode 13 of the podcast from this season, I talk about how all these different brands have jumped on the bandwagon of Pride Month and how really we should have a healthy skepticism of how queer folks are being used to sell shit. As always, links to everything that I reference is in the episode description, as well as on my website, www.leatidy.com. Let's take another call. This is an email question sent in, and they say, Hi, Leah. Thanks so much for taking time to read this. I really love your podcast. I was thinking about shared interests slash passions in relationships, and I'm curious about your take on this. I'm not trying to collapse you or your partner's personalities or interests into a neat package because obviously y'all are multifaceted people, but I wonder what you think or feel about sharing interests or passions with your partner. Obviously, we want to be interested in what our partner is interested in and to support their passions, but what if the lines begin to blur and we can't come back to our own thoughts and feelings about conservation and sustainability or sexual health, for example? Have you ever felt intimidated by or disconnected from your partner's interests or passions? And what does a healthy expression of shared interests look like in a relationship? Again, thank you so much, and I love your show. Caller, this is so fascinating. Um, I'll also just say, guilty pleasure, I have been re-watching old episodes of This Is Us, and there's a great episode where one of the couples is talking about how they feel engulfed by their other partner. It's always that partner's passions and dreams that are leading them on to new things. They're the one that is pushing them to move to a new city, to expand their horizons. And while that can be really excellent for our personal growth, for our growth in our marriage or in our relationships, it can also be really difficult to not get lost in that. Speaking from my own experience, of course, Levi and I have separate interests. Obviously, I'm really into sexual health, and he's very much in sustainability. And we do have a lot of overlap, and we share those interests as well. What I like about us having these passions, but maybe not equal interest in them, is that we can learn from each other on basically a daily basis. Levi is always reading and watching things about sustainability and keeps me up to date on what is happening in the world. On the same hand, I'm always telling him about this great book that I read or this podcast I listened to talking about these different aspects of our relationships. I wouldn't say that I've ever felt intimidated by or disconnected from my partner's interests because that's one of the things that really drew me to him and draws me to partners in general. 
Levi and I often talk about the difference between someone who is interesting and someone who is interested. Someone who is interesting, it's a pretty subjective thing, right? Like, I might think that reading a book about vaginas is super interesting, but somebody else might not think that. But if you meet someone who is truly interested in something, they're really passionate about something, I don't care if I'm not passionate about that same thing. I love witnessing that passion and that interest in someone else. I want to learn from them. Why do they care so much about it? And I think maybe that's a healthy way to approach that in our relationships. I think we get too caught up in the fact that we need to share all of our passions and all of the same interests with our romantic partners, but that's not realistic. Like you didn't end up in a relationship with someone who is exactly like you. Hopefully there are things that you can share, but also things that allow you to pursue your own passions, your own goals independently from each other. There's a saying, and I can't remember where it is from, about the difference of two people who are standing facing each other and are codependent, or two people who are standing back to back and facing outward and who are completely independent. Really, what we can think about is how are we two people facing in the same direction side by side, who are going to help each other grow, who are going to push us to maybe think about the things that we feel uncomfortable or don't want to think about, but ultimately who's going to be there to support us along the way. I'll also say that on the next episode of the podcast, I'm going to bring Levi on and I'm going to hit him with this question to see what he has to say. I also have two other excellent questions from listeners that I want to answer with Levi, so look forward to that in the next episode. And now I am very excited to share my interview with Joan Price. I definitely had a fangirling moment when Joan agreed to be on the podcast because I have been a huge fan of hers for years. Her work through books and podcasts and videos and workshops, she's so prolific, and all of that work has really helped me in my own journey of trying to promote older adults' sexual health. Joan is by far the senior sexpert, and I cannot wait for all of us to learn from her, regardless of age. So here we go. Hello, Joan Price. I'm I'm so honored to have you on the podcast, and what I like to get people to do is to introduce themselves. You know yourself and your work the best, so tell me a bit about you, and how did you come to be known as the senior sexpert? Oh, well, thank you. Happy to be here. I call myself an advocate for ageless sexuality, and by that I mean that I talk out loud about senior sex. I write about it, speak about it, travel and give workshops about it, uh, answer interviews about it. My world is talking out loud about senior sex. I've written uh, a number of books, including two that have won awards, Naked at Our Age, Talking Out Loud About Senior Sex, and Sex After Grief, which is my latest, Navigating Your Sexuality After Losing Your Beloved. I am now, as we record this, 77, will be 78 in a month. And it's sort of funny that it's this is the only career that I've ever known where the older I get, the more credibility I have. So I am happy to be talking to you about sex and aging. That's fantastic. And 
you're so right. Like for, for folks who are listening, you can't, you can't see that Joan has this like beautiful array of all of her books behind her and the awards that you've received. Um, and I'm going to say as well that Naked at Our Age was hugely beneficial for my own doctoral work. Uh, for listeners of the podcast, you've heard me talk about the fact that I've worked with older adults and youth creating theater about sexual health and as someone who is is not even 30 yet, it was so helpful to get that insight into, you know, what does that look like? What What is society feeding us in terms of like this garbage about sexuality and aging? And how do we actually, you know, embrace that process? So I kind of want to ask you first, like, what are the messages that we hear about sexuality and aging, like in the media and otherwise? It's a little better now than when I first started this work, which was when I was a youth of 61. Um, but the ick factor, as I call it, still exists, which is the notion that, ew, older people having sex, ew, that's icky. Who'd want a wrinkly person anyway? This is the message that we're given. And if you couple that with the message that my generation had growing up, which is nothing about sexual pleasure, it's all about what you should, you, you should not have sex until you're married and then suddenly you will turn into a remarkably sexual, vibrant person. And if you're a woman and you don't have um, orgasms through intercourse, then you are frigid. These are the messages that we got growing up. And that you don't talk about sexual pleasure because, you know, you it just is supposed to happen if you do it the right way. It, it, this is horribly negative. And the older we get, the more negative the messages get, because there are all these explosion of anti-aging and stop. The only way to stop aging is to die young. Come on. Why should we want that? Instead, let's embrace aging. Let's celebrate aging. Let's also celebrate our sexuality, which is ours lifelong. It changes, yes, but that doesn't mean it goes away. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm thinking about you know, like the messages that we receive ab about sexuality, right? And we start receiving that at a, at a young age. Um, and, and something that I've, I found in my own work is that even youth today are like, oh, we never talk about pleasure or there's still a lot of shame or focus on, on sexual consequences. And that's kind of sad to think that that has continued. And I wonder, do you see that kind of like compounding as, as we age as well? Like those messages around don't experience pleasure. Like I'm wondering in terms of like that intergenerational piece, has it gotten better or do, do some of those messages keep continuing as we grow older? What gets worse as we age is the who'd want you anyway mm -hmm. message. Uh, everything about older bodies, older faces, uh, older people is always that uh, if if we want sex or are sexual or are desirous of sex, that, ew, that, that nobody wants to know about it, hide that. And so we grew up thinking, oh, no, one more wrinkle uh, just, just <laughs> means I am even less desirable than I was last week. And as I get older, and I really am a proponent of embracing aging, I almost died at age 35, which is one reason that every, every year older I get, I go, oh my gosh, I might not have had this. Um, but 
I look at my skin and you can't really see on Zoom, fortunately, maybe, but my wrinkles have wrinkles. And I go, oh my goodness, really? It's okay. I can still enjoy sex. I can still be enjoyed as a sexual partner. It has nothing to do with whether my skin is wrinkly. In many ways, it has to do with how I feel about myself, mm-hmm. how I embrace my own sexuality at this age. And this is part of what I teach people. I mean, part of what I, a lot of what I teach people are they, the things that nobody teaches us that we need to know about how to keep our bodies responding sexually as we get older, because that does change. But attitude is such a big part of that. If we need to continue to have a juicy attitude about ourselves, whether we're solo or partnered, about our partners, if we happen to be partnered, and many of us are not, but also to shut out what society tells us, what advertising tells us, what other people tell us and what we tell ourselves. And when someone says to me, and I get, I do personal consultations too, as well as all these other things I do. And, and people will say, especially women will say, I'm, I want to date again. I, uh, I'm divorced or I'm widowed. I want to date again. But how could I let anybody see this body of mine with all its sags and bags and wrinkles upon wrinkles? And I have to say to them, well, where did you get this idea that an older body can't be desirable? And then they think about it. They go, oh, well. And then they look at it and they go, so much of it is media. And I say, well, what have you... What have you been taught through your lifetime that you have said, this doesn't serve me anymore, and so I'm not going to accept it? And they laugh, and they say, well, dozens of things. Okay, okay, name three. And then we can get in perspective why they're seeing themselves as non-sexually desirable people when actually this is a construct of society. Mm, absolutely. But I, can I say something about something you mentioned earlier about younger people, that they also don't know how to communicate about sexual pleasure? I sometimes give talks to younger people. I love doing that. M- my talk is titled, What I Wish I Knew About Sex and Relationships When I Was Your Age. And I would love to give this talk more often. So listeners, hire me. It's a good talk. And one of the things I talk about is learn to communicate about sex now. Practice it. Practice saying what you want. Practice giving feedback to a partner in a loving way so that then later when it becomes an absolute necessity, you're not going to be able to get aroused if your partner does not know this thing about you, you'll be able to do it. Practice hearing it. Practice hearing, I'd rather you did this instead of what you're doing. Practice saying, you know, I'd really love it if you do this now. Mm -hmm. Or it it really arouses me when. Uh, I get excited if you. 
Best not to say, I hate it when you do that, but instead work around it. What do you want someone to do instead? Work at it that way. There's so much to learn about communication. And I would love for the young people listening to this, as well as the people at my age or anywhere in between, to realize that good sexual communication is a practice. We're not born knowing how to do it. We now don't grow up learning how to do it. We sure as hell are not taught how to do it. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point, Joan. And I just, I'm so glad that you're saying it as well. I feel like I tell people constantly, communication is so important. But you know, it's like when you're hearing from that same person, you're like, oh, okay, that's great. But I, I particularly what you highlighted is Practice hearing what your partner or partners is saying to you, right? Because that's that's the other half of communication. It's not just learning how to speak what brings you pleasure. It's listening and trying not to let your own, maybe your own ego get in the way of like really having a pleasurable experience and being in that in that moment. I had the best feedback from a lover once, and I always teach people how to do it this way now, where I was helping him know how to please me. And he was saying, and he said to me, I love it when you give me directions, because I really want to pleasure you and you help me know how. Mm-hmm. And, and think about it. If we're with a new lover or even a long-term lover, if they aren't there because they want to pleasure us, well, then what are we doing with them anyway? So can't we make that assumption that that anyone we're getting naked with really does want to please us? Mm-hmm. And if we don't tell them how or in some way or guide them how, we can sometimes do it non-verbally as long as we're clear. But if we don't do that, the person is going to rely on probably what the last person <laughs> like, which might have nothing to do with what we like. We're all different. This is something we know. And uh, we've known it. (laughs) I mean, my age group, we've known that for decades. But younger people growing up, they don't know. They think, okay, so I read about a clitoris and here's how to find it. and Here's what to do with it. And oh, boy, that worked. So I will, I know how to do this from now on. No, you don't. You know how to do it with this one person right now. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't have to be defeating. That's, isn't that marvelous? You get to go on this journey of discovery every time. Absolutely. And like you said, too, with a new lover or with a long-term lover, like how exciting it is that that journey is ongoing, that you can reach kind of new depths and levels of pleasure as well, right? Because we know, you know, not not all orgasms are created equally and not all pleasurable experiences are either. There's lots of different variety and, and beautiful things you can explore in that. It's absolutely right. And, and not only that, but as we age, what we like changes. So we have to continue to keep that conversation open. Just because you knew how to throw me into orgasm um, and leave me with a, a smile on my face and a fleet and, and a floating in my emotions 10 years ago doesn't mean that that's the same as what I'm going to like today. Absolutely. So I wonder, you know, with all of this media messages about things that are happening in our bodies, are there some changes that we can expect in terms of sexuality and aging? Like things that are 
actually true versus all of the things that, that we hear about sexuality and aging that's, that we're inundated with. Sure. Um, one of the things is that arousal will take longer. That uh, if we are vulva owners, we will uh, not lubricate as much or maybe not at all. Despite our arousal, we may feel totally aroused, but our genitals are not lubricating. So we need lubricant. Uh, if we are a penis owner, our erections will become less dependable and less hard and less long lasting. And we will need, um, we will need a longer refractory period. So instead of an hour, it might be a day or two. All of this, if we embrace it, we go, okay, this is how things work now. So what can, what do we do about that to keep it wonderful? We, we need longer arousal time. Fantastic. Let's have longer arousal time. Um, penises are not dependable. So what? We can have lots of non-penetrative sex that brings us orgasms. Our, our vulvas, our, our vaginas don't lubricate naturally. No problem. There are marvelous lubricants designed for sex. Don't get the drugstore kind. Get the kind that is um, sold in good progressive sex shops. Uh, they're better. They're just better quality. And yay, we can have wonderful sex uh, embracing these changes instead of you know, hiding, running to the bathroom to apply lubricant so our partner will never know. No, come on, stop it. And anything that happens, we can learn to see not as something personal happening because we're not doing it right for a partner, but instead, okay, our partner has different needs, which our partner will explain to us what to do about it, and I'll do it. Yeah. Definitely. That's you know, sort of a quick overview, but no, there's lots, but no, that's, that's so helpful as well. Right. Cause it kind of, it demystifies these things. Cause I feel so yeah. often, you know, at any age, we can sometimes feel disconnected from our bodies. If, you know, we don't understand yeah. what's going on with them and we don't also have empathy or take the time to understand what's happening, you know, like that, that disassociation between arousal and lubrication can happen at any age. And if you start talking about it and thinking about it throughout your life, like it won't be as a, like a surprising or like shameful thing, like as we get older, because it doesn't need to be. That's right. And it's, and it's fine, even with a new partner, especially with a new partner to just be upfront about this. Um, hi. So uh, I need to let you know something before we go to the next stage. I need to use lubricant. This is the kind I like. And I might not have an orgasm without a sex toy. So I've got one charged and ready to go if we need it. And, and don't forget, I never have sex without condoms. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, that, that brings up a really good point. Um, a lot of the folks that I've worked with at various different ages, um, it's been hard to talk about uh, sometimes using condoms or other barrier methods to protect against sexually transmitted infections. Because there seems to be this assumption that you don't trust your partner or your lover who you're engaging with if you ask for those, if you ask for those barrier methods. Like, so do you have any advice on, you know, how do you navigate that conversation? Like, what, what can that look like? I am laughing right now because 
Uh, yeah, I have a whole webinar that's online, and this one is free. Most of my webinars are fee-based, but this one is free. It's on YouTube, and it's called Safer Sex for Seniors with Joan Price. If you Google that, um, or maybe you can even put a direct link to it in the show notes. Although I do it specifically for older people, there is little in it that young people can't use. So I would say for all ages, watch it because I make it fun and um, show you some things that I'm sure you don't even expect to see in a safer sex um, video, especially done by someone in her 70s. But how to talk about it is a big part of that video. It's uh, and and I give some sample sample things you can say, such as um, your condoms or mine. Mm. Uh, I never have sex without barrier protection. Do, do do you have it here? Do we need to make a run to the store? If you, of course, if you know you're going to have sex with this person, or you even suspect so have it with you. Be prepared. If it's at your house, have it ready. If you're going to someone else's house, have it with you, along with the lubricant and any sex toy you might need to carry along. I mean, be proactive about it. You're in charge of your own sexual health. And if someone says to you, I, um, I can't feel it with a condom or, oh, no, no, you don't need to. I got tested yesterday or last year or uh, you're, the, you're my first partner since my breakup, whatever. doesn't matter what they say. Your answer needs to be, especially if they say, um, I can't feel it with a condom. And I will say, so can you feel no sex w without a condom better? Because that's the only option. There are just practice what you're going to say, have it ready. And you don't wait till the last minute for this conversation. If it looks like even the next time might be sexual for a, a first time lover, then say before, before we uh, make our next date, I need to let you know that I only have sex with barrier protections. And so um, if you have a problem with that, we're not going to go any further. Yeah, that's so excellent. And and I'll say to listeners as well that I always make sure I leave links in the episode description and on my website of all of oh, the good. resources that you share and links, yeah, to your website and your webinars and your books. Thank like, you. Yeah, of course. Well, it's such good information. And I think what I, I really appreciate about the work that you do as well is there's lots of different ways for people to engage. You know, some people need they need a book to fully like yeah. to understand and take that time or that you need a webinar or a podcaster. So you offer such a wide or a film. Exactly. Right. Like there's just beautiful ways to to learn about these things and really accessible ways that that you've created, which I just I so appreciate. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah I'm a former high school teacher. <laughs> I did that for 22 years. I didn't teach sex at that time. I taught uh English. But at that time, it was very clear to me that people learn in different ways, that some people learn by reading, some people learn by seeing, some people learn by hearing, some people learn by repeating. There are so many different learning modalities. And so when I got into this field of sex education, I try to translate that into um, 
as many different learning uh, modalities as I can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you particularly as well. I've I've had a decent amount of of listeners and followers, you know, uh, particularly um, older folks with vulvas and older women, kind of saying that they are, are just feeling kind of like overwhelmed by their bodies changing, either potentially through menopause, um, you know, pre, post, during, uh, but then also just kind of this this double bind of like ageism and sexism that I think particularly yeah. impacts uh, folks with vulvas. So like, is that who you, you hear from most often? Do you get a lot oh, of yeah. questions about that? Like, Well, I also hear from penis owners mm-hmm. as well as vulva owners. But yes, the the issues are, are often different. And, the, and what you just said is what the vulva owners and, uh, and people who identify as women do say. And so, of course, the first advice is to learn as much as you can about the aging process and how it affects sexuality, Learn and hence all the books. The Ultimate Guide to Sex After 50 is my most comprehensive book with sex information. Naked at Our Age, which you noted as being, being really important in your life, is the one that has the most real people's stories. And so, again, depending on how you learn, do you want just the information or do you want to hear about how other people do it? Then, um, so I love that these are both an option. Then there is Ageless Erotica, which is erotic stories written by people over 50, erotica writers over 50, featuring characters over 50. And so do you want to be turned on? by people our age having spicy sex while still accommodating the needs of aging. And speaking of accommodating, let me say one more thing that's important about this subject. Keep a sense of humor. Keep a sense of humor. Because, uh, you know, I laugh about old people's sex. Old people's sex isn't just the need for arousal and lubricant and sex toys and alternatives to penetrative sex. It's also, what do you do when (laughs) I need support for my neck? Oh, I can't be in that position because of my wrist arthritis. Oh no, my knees. I'm sorry. I can't stay this way. We have to laugh about some of the challenges that life throws us. If we laugh it's so much easier to deal with those things. If instead of, um, of, of just white knuckling it out, sometimes literally <laughs> because of the, what hurts and aches and pains and all these other problems, if instead we can laugh with a partner and say, okay, I have to change positions. This is going to take a while. <laughs> And then the partner says, okay, be careful, be careful. And we just end up uproariously laughing and accepting this, accepting ourselves at this stage of life. Okay, okay, I'm ready. You sure? You okay? Your elbow's okay? Your wrist's okay? Your knees are okay? Your neck's okay? We can just laugh about this and we must we must, because otherwise this aging process can be terrifying. Mm-hmm. I think as as a sexual health educator, that is such useful advice to say, you know, to, to folks at any age, like we have to be able to laugh because 
absurd things happen when you're having sex and embarrassing things happen. And you're like, oh, I didn't know my body could make that noise or like, so I think you're, you're so right that it's something where not only if we're laughing, but also can we, how can we practice, um, empathy and really like listening to our partner's needs, right? To say, you know, do you need a, a pillow if we're going to be in this yeah. position? Or, you know, we're, we're getting close to falling off the bed or on the side of the bed. How do we how do we shift to make sure we don't end up with one of us on the floor? Unless that's what we're trying to do. <laughs> I have, uh, if I could share a little story, it wasn't anything that personally happened to me, but it happened um, to a person I know who at the time she told the story, she was only in her 20s, and her mother, who was a psychologist, was there with us. And the mother, and we had just said something about, is there anything funny about sex? And the mother said, you know, sex is deadly serious. It's not funny. And the daughter said, well, then I'm going to tell you, mom, about what just happened to me. I was visiting my boyfriend, and he had this tiny, tiny apartment that was so small that the bed took up the whole room, and that when we got, we had to negotiate even walking when we get off the bed, and it turned out that this boyfriend was giving this young woman cunnilingus, and he accidentally kicked a closet that opened and an ironing board came down and hit him on the head. And she said, and she, she said we just had to laugh. And she looks at her mother, the deadly serious therapist, who is just on the floor laughing. We have to be able to laugh at sex. Fortunately, he wasn't permanently injured, but it did interrupt the moment. <laughs> things are going to interrupt the moment. Yeah. And I think that's something that we can get caught up as well. Like we hear that fantasy of this like spontaneous sexual experience and everything transitions seamlessly and just like, well, where's the negotiation about, okay, what, what barrier methods are we using or my place or yours or uh, on the yeah. bed or whichever, you know, like there's all of those which I think of those, those like juicy, like really personal intimate moments that happen in sex. It's so sad when you don't see that reflected in the media or, or what we, what we're teaching folks. That should be a part of, of how we explain it. I have a question about young people's sex for you. Oh. Apropos of what we're talking about, about how we're supposed to think sex happens in a certain way. Okay, in all the movies and TV shows, this couple can't wait to get to each other. They come in the apartment, kick the door closed, and can't even wait to get to the bedroom. So they just do it on the kitchen table. Does that ever happen? And is that ever good? You know, I feel like in terms of like fantasy in our brains, oh, I've definitely fantasized about it. And I've heard other young folks say, oh, wouldn't that be great? Like you, like you said, you come in through the door, you, you don't even make it to the bedroom. You're having sex up against the wall or on the kitchen table. Also, kitchen counters, sometimes they're cold and have crumbs on them. Like they're hard. Yeah, they're hard. And edges. Yeah. And I just, you know, 
I haven't myself uh, indulged and I haven't had a lot of like friends or people that I teach say that that's happened either. It's, it's we'll have to ask the listeners to get back to us on that. Yeah. Do you have a uh, a sex success story, as Dan Savage says? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a listener too. Right. It was. I would. I would love to hear if you have a sex success story of in the kitchen. Of you know, did you have that Hollywood moment, either in the rain or bursting in through the door, and how was it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at my age, first thing that would have happened is that we'd go ow, ow, ow from kicking the door. And then we try to get on the table. It's another ow, ow, ow. This is too hard and there's no support for my neck. And then, uh, yeah, I mean, just no way. And then, of course, the kitchen table has to be at the right height, ideal height for this couple that's never had sex before, correct? Yeah, absolutely. How is it that the table is always the exact right height for the two people who are getting it on? You know, not all of us have set deck who can come in and make sure we have the right size furniture for us. That's right. That's right. We all need adjustable kitchen tables. (laughs) Absolutely. With a condom dispenser and lubricant. I don't think this is going anywhere. Sorry, I asked. (laughs) No, I love it. I love it. I mean, I don't know how you could host a dinner party. People come over and they're like, what's this? Like, oh, it's just the condom and lube dispenser. Don't mind that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just go around. Don't forget the sex toy charger. (laughs) Yeah. So, Joan, it, it has been such a, a pleasure talking to you. But I, but before I let you go, I just want to ask, like, you know, what what's one uh, maybe, like, myth about sexuality and aging that you just wish people would stop believing in? You just want them to uh, cut it out. That sex has an expiration date. That at a certain part of time, it's over. At a certain point, you give up because the problems are too many. I wish people would not believe that myth. Yeah, that is so powerful and so true that sex doesn't have an expiration date. I just, I think it's a a wonderful, beautiful thing. And to think, you know, depending on, you know, if we decide to become sexually active, you know, we do all this work, working on it, getting to know what works for our bodies. And then what, at a certain age, we just have to stop practicing? Like, well, why? It's a continual process. We keep learning. We discover some things at 20 and we discover some more at 30 and at 40 and 50 and 60. And then the older you get, the more you sort of have to discover new things about every month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's a very like exciting uh, process to be in. And as we, as we said before, you know, uh, how fortunate if we're, you know, if we're lucky enough, we will all become older adults. So why not embrace that, embrace aging and those beautiful sexual experiences we can have throughout our lives. Exactly right. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate your time. And I will have links to all of your books, videos, uh, podcast episodes that you've been in, uh, also your mailing list. You have so many great resource people to access. I highly, highly recommend checking them out. And if I could say this, that if anyone is maybe listening to this on the, in the car or on a walk and can't get to the show notes, just joanprice.com will get you everything. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Love Doctor podcast. On the next episode of the podcast, I'm actually bringing Levi back. I know I said that I was going to last time, but actually this time, I'm going to bring him back on the show. And we're going to talk about what it's like being married to me, a bisexual woman, and our journey on starting a new YouTube channel that's basically about our relationship. Now, if you have a question for the show, send me a voice memo to the Love Doctor podcast at gmail.com. 
or you can send me a voice message on Instagram at dr.leahtidy. And even if you don't send in a question, you can check me out on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, hey, leave a review, share it with your friends, and let me know what you thought of this episode. Until then, folks, stay healthy, stay safe, stay consensual. <laughs>